0: Listening to the Sermon Podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about twenty minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Today's scripture reading is from Romans nine verses one through eighteen. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all, God-blessed forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what the promise said, About this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebekah when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac. Even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works but by his call, she was told, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses.
1: Thanks for that reading, Shauna. Before we get started, I want to thank uh, Chris O'Brien, who was our guest preacher last week. He uh, filled the pulpit to give me the week off, which was awesome. Um, I uh, I got some rest, I got recharged, I am feeling good. Um, I don't know if that's good news or bad news for all of you, because I've got a lot of energy. <clears throat> um, but I also want to thank uh, just all the, all the leaders here who stepped up. I know Jimson um covered some stuff, the Benzon family. Um, anyone else who, who, well, all of you who serve anyway, um, but especially last week who had to pick up a little extra slack. Thank you. Um, I really appreciate it. <clears throat> so this is a pretty big day. Um, I'm not sure if anyone else is keeping track. It's probably just me. But we are officially, as of today, halfway through the book of Romans. (laughs) Yay, yeah, See, some of of you are very happy. (laughs) Those of you who have been following along through this are very happy. Um, Romans has uh, 16 chapters. Today we are starting chapter 9, which means that we are exactly halfway. We are just over the hump. And uh, to sort of mark this occasion before we dive into this new section of the book that we're starting today, I want to hit pause for a second here at the top and just highlight a little bit of where we've been to kind of catch everybody up. Uh, now, throughout this series, I've been encouraging us all to read Romans from home, to kind of read along together. Um, and we've, we've split the Book of Romans into chunks, uh, four chunks of chapters to kind of make it a little more digestible. The idea is to focus on one section at a time, reading it on your own at home, kind of over and over again, throughout the week as we work through it here together in worship. We've divided Romans into four sections. The first two sections, perfect, Uh, chapters 1 to 4 and 5 to 8, that's all the dense theological stuff. That's what we've just gotten through. Uh, That's where Paul talks about sin and salvation and justification and Jesus and Abraham, Jesus and Adam. That's all the like abstract, heady, hard-to-follow theological stuff. We've covered that, and you've made it. Good work. And then the fourth section of Romans, which we're not at yet, Romans uh, 12 to 16, that's all the practical stuff. Uh, Moral instruction, how to live together as Christian community, how Christians should relate to structures of worldly power and authority, even like contextual stuff where Paul uh, greets people he knows in Rome, that all in this last section which leaves us with the third section that we're starting today, Romans 9 to 11. If you've been following along with us at home, if you've been reading through Romans, this is the next section you're going to want to start reading through once or twice a week. It's the shortest section of the book. probably takes like 10 minutes to read through. But it's also probably the most confusing. And I know what you're all thinking, yay, because those first eight chapters were so easy to understand. Now, Romans 9-11 is confusing, but not because it's dense or abstract or anything like that. This section of the book is hard to understand because for most of church history, people just haven't known what to make of it. Romans 9-11 is the section of the letter where Paul, who is a Jewish Christian, is lamenting the fact that the majority of his fellow Jews have rejected Jesus. That's what's going on in this section in a nutshell. Paul's basically having an existential crisis right in the middle of the book of Romans, you know, like you do. And for the bulk of church history, for the last, let's say, 1,800 years or so, most Christians haven't known what to make of this. Even like most academics, the scholars, who study this stuff for a living, haven't been able to figure out what to do with Romans nine to eleven and how, if at all, it still applies to us today. The first two sections of Romans, this abstract stuff, we get that, right? That's the doctrine. That's where we get like our ideas about sin and justification. We don't understand it, but we know what we're supposed to do with it. This last section, twelve to, 12 to sixteen—sorry, that's a typo. That's the ethical stuff what you're supposed to do and not to, not do. We know what to do with that. We don't follow it, usually, but, but we get it. But this third section where Paul is lamenting the fact that his fellow Israelites, his fellow Jews, have rejected Jesus, what are we supposed to do with that, exactly? There are commentaries on the book of Romans that skip this section entirely, Uh, There are some scholars who think this section was added on sometime later, like maybe after he had written the letter or in a later draft, Paul was just like, you guys, there's something on my heart that I just need to put in here. And he just kind of slid it in. I don't think that's what actually happened, but that's one theory that's out there. And then there's a handful of Christians in history who thought they knew what this section was all about. They would tell you exactly what Paul was talking about here, and it led into some pretty destructive territory. And it all boils down to this line from verses 6 to 7. Not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. Not all of Israel is Israel. you know Western history at all, and especially if you know how Christians in Europe, our ancestors in the faith, a lot of our ancestors in the faith, how they historically treated their Jewish neighbors, it doesn't take much imagination to see what a verse like this could be used for. In much the same way that like racism is America's original sin, the original sin of the church is anti-Semitism. White Christians in Europe didn't, like, invent anti-Semitism, but boy, we sure perfected it. See, a lot of us don't remember this stuff too well. Most of us, if not all of us, were either born after or at least came of age after World War II when, like, the horrors of the Holocaust woke most of, like, Western Christendom up to the dangers of anti-Semitism. I say most because this is still an issue for some people. We've seen a nasty resurgence of anti-Semitic violence in the last five to 10 years. And what's really kind of terrifying is that if, if you look back at the last 2,000 years of church history, those handful of extremist, anti-Semitic Christians are actually far closer to the norm than we'd probably like to admit. For most of our history, Christians have treated Jews terribly. We treat them like second-class citizens. That break between Christianity and Judaism happened really early, like around the end of the second century or so. So we're talking like 200 AD, give or take a few decades. And it was only about 100 years after that that the Roman Empire itself became Christian, like officially. And as soon as Christians got authority we started using it to oppress people of other faiths, especially Jews. If you want a little taste of how Christians have historically treated Jews, look at how we treat Muslims today. It'll give you like a glimpse. When Muslims try to build a new mosque somewhere, or like a community center, there is almost always some random group of Christians that show up to protest. In majority Christian countries, like France, there are laws on the books that prevent Muslims from openly practicing their faith in public. Whenever there's like a terrorist attack or some Muslim individual carries out a random act of violence somewhere in the West, you see Christian leaders, pastors, politicians demonizing all Muslims, racially profiling them, banning them, Take that, amplify it by about 10, and you will have a sense of how our ancestors in the faith treated Jews for most of our history. It's terrible. So we have to be really careful how we read a passage like this. This has been used to promote and to back up that ugly anti-Semitic garbage. If we misinterpret this passage, it can lead to genocide. And if we don't read it, if we're just like, oh, let's forget about that, well, then there will be no one around to give a counter-argument when other Christians try to use this verse to do evil. See, here's the thing to remember with this section of Romans. Paul is not operating with the assumption that Christianity and Judaism are separate religions. That would have been news to him. When he wrote this letter in the first century, Christianity was still a sect within Judaism. It was a radical sect. Uh, Many would have viewed it as heretical. And it was starting to change. It was starting to bring in Gentiles and do some weird stuff. But Paul did not know a distinction between Christianity and Judaism. He never could have imagined a world in which Christians, number one, held power, and number two, used that power to exploit Jews. That would have made zero sense to Paul. But we know that history. We have 2,000 years of hindsight on this section of Romans, so we have to be very careful when we interpret a text like this. We have to interpret it well. We have to read it within its context of what was going on in the churches in Rome. And here's the good news. If we do that... This section of Romans actually makes perfect sense. Remember, and we've talked about this a lot throughout this series, but just to kind of catch us all up, Paul's writing to a group of house churches in Rome that are divided between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. Jews and Gentiles in the culture at this time were not getting along. Little more than a decade before Paul wrote Romans, Caesar, the emperor of Rome, expelled all Jews from the city and just before paul wrote this letter the jews were allowed back in so you've got these jewish exiles coming back home returning to rome to the churches they founded which are now run by gentiles their arch enemies awkward right and as like as tense as that would have been jews and gentiles separately at this time faced even more tension outside the church. If you're a Jewish Christian in the first century, you probably have friends and family who have disowned you for following Jesus. They've written you out of the will, dismissed you as a heretic, kicked you out of the synagogue, severed all ties because of your affinity for this failed Messiah who was killed by the Romans. And even worse, now you're associating in these churches with Gentiles, the enemy. And if you're a Gentile Christian at this point, well, then you've probably got some friends, family members, neighbors who are a little concerned, maybe even a little suspicious about all this time you're spending around Jews and this new weird little Jewish cult you've joined centered around some dead carpenter who was executed by the government. Long story short, Paul is not the only one having an existential crisis here. Are you following me at this point? Are we, is this tracking? Good. I see nodding. So when Paul's wrestling with Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, this is a question that would have been totally relevant for his audience, and believe it or not, this sort of thing is still relevant for us too. If you've ever wrestled with doubt, this section of Romans is for you. If you ever found yourself wondering, like, Am I am I crazy? Am I wrong about this Jesus thing? It feels a little too good to be true. This section of Romans is for you. Have you ever had to defend your faith, um, maybe you found yourself at the receiving end of judgment from some friends or relatives. I don't know about Dan. He's been a little different ever since he started going back to church. Have you ever had a falling out with a religious community, like a bad breakup with a church, maybe you left a church and then you discovered that you lost your whole friend group. People don't return your calls anymore. You've been unfriended on Facebook. Maybe you experienced some kind of growth in your faith. You started asking more questions, only to find out that those questions were off-limits in the community of faith that you called home. This section of Romans is for you. I have a friend who got kicked out of her church because she read the wrong book. This was the church that, like, taught her everything she knew about faith. She grew up in this church. These are the people who taught her about God and Jesus and grace. But then she read a book by a Christian author from the wrong denomination, and she was cast out. That's traumatic. When your religion, your church, this place that was a source of community and belonging, when that becomes a place of exclusion and condemnation, that cuts deep. Or maybe you've had this experience where, like, you were embarrassed or turned off by the public witness of other Christians. Like, you're trying to follow Jesus, like we talk about here. You're trying to love others, even your enemies. You're trying to live out of this sense of love and mercy and peace. But then there are these other Christians on the news or on the street corner, spewing hate and anger. When we see prominent Christian leaders get exposed as frauds, maybe they were covering something up or they had a moral failing, When we see Christians we respect, supporting violence and injustice, it's really easy to be like, maybe I'm the weirdo. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe this whole Christianity thing isn't for me. This section of Romans is for you. Paul is wrestling with his people's rejection, not just of Jesus, but of him and of these other Jewish Christians who have been cast out. With all that set up, and with the sermon, like, almost over, let's reread the first part of our passage, at least the first few verses. Romans 9, I'll start in verse 1. See if this makes any more sense, if it hits a little bit differently. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. I don't know if you can pick up the tone from this, but Paul is heartbroken. He starts this section with lament. He would rather be cut off from Christ. He would rather be condemned, damned, whatever language you want to use, if it would enable his people to see what he sees about Jesus not getting much anger here or resentment. Paul's not out for revenge looking to start a fight. He doesn't think that he's enlightened and everyone else is an idiot. He doesn't want to debate or argue. He's coming at this, this conversation from a place of loss, of sadness, of lament. Lament. I think what often happens when we have a falling out with a religious community is it's really easy to become bitter and angry. We were wronged. We were traumatized. It's easy for us to hold on to that resentment. We feel like now we're in a better place. We're more enlightened. We've evolved. And so now we want to go back to that old group, those old friends, and we want to force them to see what we see. We start arguments. We pick fights. That makes you pretty miserable to be around too, by the way, if you've ever been there. I taught at a seminary for three years and we saw a lot of this. Um, A lot of first year seminary students are what we would call messed up former fundamentalists. We have a word for it. Messed up former fundamentalists. These are folks who were given one form of the faith, the form of the faith that was instilled in them as children. And then they reached a point in life where it didn't work for them anymore. They had to deconstruct it. They had to rearrange. So they went off to seminary. They learned a few things. And now they're going to go back and fix their old church. That does not end well, by the way. Just a heads up. Any of you are tempted. Paul's not on a warpath here. He's not angry or bitter or looking for a fight. He's depressed. He's sad. He's lamenting. He's devastated that his fellow Israelites have rejected Jesus. And whenever there's a break, a traumatic break in a religious community like this, we've got to process those feelings. We've got to do the work of lament. It's really easy to skip over uh, sadness and go right to anger because you don't have to reflect on your anger. You just get angry. Sadness takes more work. You've got to work through your loss. You've got to lament. You've got to process. You've got to come up with some new form of understanding. That's the only way to be made whole. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. I want to read a little bit more. <clears throat> Verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all Israelites truly belong to Israel, and not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as descendants. And then Paul goes on to talk about a bunch of names that a lot of us probably don't know that well. They're names from the Old Testament Rebekah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau. What Paul is doing here is he's working through this loss. He's looking for a way to understand what happened. He starts out by affirming that God hasn't failed. God hasn't abandoned God's people. The word of God hasn't fallen flat. And so to make sense of this all, Paul lands on this history from Scripture of younger sons prevailing over older sons. It's what all these names he's rambling off is about. There's this design pattern in the Bible, this uh, repeated theme that we see over and over again, where the younger son is chosen over the older son. Happens time and time again. In the culture of the Old Testament, it was very patriarchal. Generally, the older son was the blessed son. They would get a double inheritance when their father died. They would also receive a special blessing from the gods. But in Israel's story, it's the opposite. It's always the younger son who receives the blessing. Abraham, the ancient patriarch of Israel, he has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was born first, but Isaac was the son of promise. Then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Anybody want to guess what happened? (laughs) Jacob, the younger son, prevailed over his older brother, Esau. We see this over and over again. King David, King Solomon, all these stories where it's the younger son, the lesser, the outcast, the kid who no one expected to amount to anything. They're the one that God ends up working through. Paul uses this example almost as if to say, This is how it always works. You Jewish Christians, you you feel outcast, you feel left out, you've been disowned, written out of the will. Well, yeah, that's the story. This is how it always goes. The ones at the top, they're missing the point, they're not getting it. The leaders, the insiders, the ones who are supposed to understand, they're missing what God is doing. Well, yeah, read the Bible. That's what happens. And then this line, not all of Israel is Israel. Paul's not saying that from a place of judgment or condemnation. This isn't about one religion being better than another. There aren't two religions at play here for Paul. This is about acknowledging that sometimes There's going to be people in your own community, your own church, your own family, who do not see what God is doing in your life. And that doesn't mean God has failed. It doesn't mean you've been abandoned. It doesn't mean you need to argue and correct everybody. It just means that you hold tight to God and press on, accepting that not all Israel is Israel. Not all of your friends are really your friends. Not everybody that you think has your back actually has your back. Not every community you thought was a place of love and acceptance actually ends up being a place of love and acceptance. Not all Jesus followers follow Jesus. Not all of Israel is Israel. Israel. What if this line could become a sort of refrain for us? Not all of Israel is Israel. Or if you want to ditch the anti-Semitic baggage, which is probably a good idea, uh, not all the insiders are insiders. Not all my friends are really my friends. Not all Jesus followers follow Jesus. What if the next time you're around your friends from your old church, instead of debating them or picking a fight, you just repeat to yourself, not all insiders are insiders. It's not my job to argue with these people or try to fix them or prove something to them. I just have to embody Christ to them. Or the next time you're at a family dinner, if we're ever ever able to do those again, (laughs) we will be. The next time you're at a family dinner and that uncle shows up, You know that uncle. We all have that uncle. Some of us have probably been that uncle. (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) What if instead of getting into another fight, another argument, not all insiders are insiders. Not all family members are going to treat me like family, and my job is to love them and maybe establish some good healthy boundaries when I'm around them. The next time you have a falling out with a church, which hopefully won't be ours, (laughs) but you are here, so. Hmm. Not all of Israel is Israel. Sometimes the people who should get it don't get it, and that is not your burden to bear. Let's pray. God, this is such a hard topic for so many of us. There's so much pain around this, Lord. And I want to lift up anybody here who, um, or anybody watching from from home for that matter, for whom this teaching hits a little too close to home today. Those of us who've lost friends or on the outs from our families, those of us who've had to change churches or had a painful breakup with our religious community, Lord, for anyone in that place, I pray for an extra measure of peace and grace and love. Help us to see that you are still with us. Help us to hold tight to you and to follow you. Repair our broken hearts, Lord, and lead us to new, healthy communities that are centered on Christ and guided by your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter, at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.